Hello everyone, welcome to The Start Life. The countdown is now truly on for our inaugural women's retreat out in Beatty, Nevada. We've got just over two weeks to go, so I'm super excited. Uh, We still have some spaces left, but not many. So if you're interested, head on over to the Fuel Talk website at fueltalk.co and click on events to get all the details and the link to sign up as well. Um, In other news, we're also hosting a nationwide campaign with Specialised for Women called The New Kid on the Block. This campaign is targeted at beginners or even just women who are interested in getting into cycling. There's clinics and workshops happening all over the country. So if you head over to Specialised, click on Stories and scroll down to find the New Kid on the Block page. Um, and then you can register in there or just find the event that's going to be happening closest to you. For us here in the Las Vegas and Henderson area, we're having a, a beginners or new kid on the block event on March 31st, which is next Saturday at from 11 o'clock. We'll have different... Um, different stations for how to fix a flat, how to ride on the road with traffic, how to uh, plan a route and and also just talking about the the various stuff you need just to get going you know so it'll be a great event and we'll have some swag from Specialized and some food and drinks um, provided by Las Vegas Cyclery so as I say if you head on to Specialized and register at the website there um, that is where we are asking people to register at. <laughs> um, anyway, that's enough uh, business. So today's podcast, we are focusing on nutrition and I am so honoured to be joined by Dr. Rachel Pajetnik. Um, Rachel is an assistant professor at, of nutrition at Simmons College and a former research fellow at the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine um, at Harvard Medical School. Uh, Rachel's work has a specific focus on physical activity and nutrition interventions for the prevention and treatment of non-communicable chronic disease. What does that mean? That's your things like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, things that are caused by diseases that are caused by poor nutrition and health. So really like that's a huge there's a huge market for that in this country not even a market because it's not something you want to sell I mean just like healthy living is what she's basically done all her research about so um it's a really quite a quite a widespread problem in in this country as well as other um westernized uh, societies as well is is um it's actually poor health which is you would think is a little bit backwards actually but anyway um, she's also the founder of the Strong Process Forum, which is a one-day event happening in Boston. It's actually happening on April the 8th. So if you're in the Boston area, if you head on over to strongprocess.com, you can get your tickets and all the information there. They've got three panels of scientists, farmers, journalists, athletes, clinicians, and innovators designed to integrate evidence-based knowledge into the health and wellness space. So you've got all this group of like um, 
people that are doing all the research and then you've got all the people that are actually implementing it in um, our health and fitness industry but there's a little bit of a disconnect between the two groups so this forum is to bring those two groups together and really make sure that everyone is on the same page and we can all work together to promote and to, to build a stronger healthier nation. Um, I did ask her about a tour of this because obviously it's the same weekend as our women's retreat so I won't be able to go but um, hopefully I think she will I think there's a chance she'll come to Vegas so let's uh so maybe press her on that just a little bit and then and then we can get a strong process forward I might here in Vegas because goodness knows we've got plenty fitness professionals out here that's for sure um, so we did talk about many important topics throughout the interview, such as the organic versus non-organic discussion when it comes to our food, uh, gut health, and is there a way that we can make vegetables sexy? <laughs> um, I think it's a great interview and I really can't wait to have another interview with her down the line. So without further ado, please welcome to This Start Life, Dr. Rachel Projetnik. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Busy? It's yeah, that and we also just had a massive snowstorm here oh in my Boston. Gosh. Yeah, so we've been digging out for three days. Oh my goodness! Good. Yeah, oh my word. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time for this. I was like, oh, I'm so grateful. I I honestly think that we may have to like do another one as well because I have so many questions. That I feel like it's going to go on forever. And like there's so much that I know that you will be able to like inform us about and like talk about that like I just kind of want to let that roll. So Okay. So yeah. I'm excited. So So Rachel, you are one of your many hats is professor of nutrition at Simmons, is that correct? That's right. In Boston. In Boston. Okay. And how long have you been there? So I've been here about four years now. I've been full-time two years in the nutrition department, but I was teaching in the exercise science and biology department before I was nutrition. Okay. So, so did you always, so did you kind of gravitate towards nutrition after the exercise stuff or like, had you always wanted to kind of pursue the nutrition side of things? Yeah, that it's, that's a great question. My trajectory to where I am right now is like the most squiggly, squiggly line you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, So I started my career as an exercise physiologist undergrad. um, And then I went, I thought I was going to be a physician. I was like, this is what I want to do and be a doctor. It was what I committed to when I was, you know, two years old. And then I started working in the hospitals and I was like, hell no, this is not what I want to do at all. (laughs) Different, isn't it? Like just the whole medical industry, it's it's not like what's on uh, on ER or um, yeah. Grey's Anatomy or something. It's definitely no, exactly. not that. <laughs> no. And so for me, it was a lot about, I mean, I really liked the work. I liked how mm-hmm. intense it was. Um, but the hours are just insane. I was like, no, yeah. 80 hours a week is not really what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and so then I had a, basically a complete crisis of identity and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I got this amazing job teaching science to middle school students okay. and also doing a bunch of strength and conditioning work with um, an upper school at the same location and realized that I loved, loved, loved teaching. Okay. And so I wanted to go back to school. Eventually I got to a point where I was getting a little itchy and I wanted to go back to school um, to 
get an advanced degree. And it's really weird, but in Boston, there are no advanced degrees. I mean, there's master's degrees, but not terminal degrees in exercise okay. specifically. And so most of the programs are actually tied into exercise and nutrition. Okay. And I was just thinking like, hey, yeah, this is cool. You know, I, as a, you know, exercise physiologist know that nutrition is so important for mm-hmm. you. And then got working on my master's and into my PhD and just took a hard turn into nutrition, just realizing how critical and important it really is and how yeah. integrated the two are. So when yes. you're moving your body, thinking about all the ways that you're fueling it and, yep. um, you know, so it took a while to get yeah. here, um, but uh, here I am. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I think then let's, let's start with like the nutrition side of things. So um, you, you currently you still do a lot of research and stuff there. Or are you mostly teaching now too, or do you have any research projects going at the moment? Yeah, it's about half and half. Okay. So I do, um, I teach predominantly at Simmons and then I do my research at both the Beth Israel Deaconess um, Hospital here in Boston, which is part of Harvard Medical School. And we're doing a really cool study looking at patients with type 2 diabetes. Okay. And we're investigating two different diets. One is a, basically it's a vegan diet, which is okay. really extreme and kind of neat. And then we're comparing it to what the USDA and the U.S. government says is a healthy eating diet Okay, to see if we can see differences. You know, if you, so a question that I have a lot that I work with people in the sort of wellness space is, mm-hmm. you know, when you start to take things to extremes, do you get you know, better results. Mm -hmm. And so we're really testing that out to see if there's any additional benefits beyond healthy eating to Mm -hmm. really going as far out as a vegan diet with patients with type 2 diabetes. Okay. So I guess that's, that's probably a good place to start is just like those extreme diets. I mean, I'm sure like there are so many like recently within like the health industry or the fitness industry that have been kind of, um, like, you know, diet of the month or fat or, or of the season. And like, there seems to, there was like the ketogenic diet was like all the rage, I feel like last year and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and on one hand, like part of me kind of feels like, well, all of these different like fad diets, they are just that they're a diet. Like you're, you're kind of like, um, scrutinizing what you're eating and like restricting certain stuff. So some people may just have benefit from that just because they're being more mindful of what they eat. Um, what is your take on all these kind of fad diets and, and is there really a place for them or are they just, are they not sustainable? I don't, in my yeah. act, they don't seem sustainable. I like no. food and I like variety <laughs> and stuff, but <laughs> yeah, that's exactly true. And I think, so I always talk about it as sort of the spectrum of healthy eating. When mm-hmm. I talk to people about this is that you can be on one side of the spectrum. You can be, I guess the most extreme and the side is ketogenic. It used to be paleo, mm-hmm. um, where it's, you know, like very heavy or very, uh, fat or used to be protein heavy diet. And then Mm -hmm. on the other side, you get the vegan diet where, you know, there's just, you're eating nothing plants. Yeah. And if you're on that spectrum, I mean, I would argue that you're eating food, so you're doing all right. 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 (laughs) The problem is, is that the majority of the people that I work with that live in the world don't really even live on that spectrum. Okay. So that most people, when we look at the data, we look at about 60% of most people's diet is highly processed crap. Right. So, yeah. So the, you know, when we start to look at these diets and thinking about like, you know, optimizing your diet or getting more healthy, the best thing you can do is to take the highly processed crap out Mm -hmm. and then find where you're 
best fit is on that healthy eating spectrum. Right. So to your point, like you're like, you know, I like eating food. Sometimes mm-hmm. I have a beer and mm-hmm. I like chocolate. Right. So ketogenic is not going to be for you. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there are people that are, you know, I use my husband and I as an example all the time. I can eat pasta all day, every day. Love it. I exercise a lot. So I burn yep. it off. I yep. crave the carbohydrates. I love it. Yep. He also is an avid exerciser. He's, you know, a, a pretty awesome cyclist and does a lot of yoga and whatever. But he, for carbohydrates for him, he feels like garbage when he eats them. He's okay. like, I really crave a lot of protein and a lot of fat. Mm-hmm. So he definitely leans in that direction. We're both doing it right. We're just trying mm-hmm. to figure out, you know, where on that spectrum we our bodies fit and our lifestyle fits. And so, you know, I think that to your point of paying attention to where, like what it is that you love and that you're not going to give up Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to make everything around that as healthy as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. That's the key. Mm -hmm. I have, I have a really good um, friend. She's actually the dietitian for the Red Sox out here. And I love it. She says all the time, don't do anything with your diet that you're not willing to do for the rest of your life. Okay. So it just makes so much sense to me, you know, like yeah. find the healthiest thing that you can commit to forever and do yep. that. Yeah. Because that's really what's going to make a difference at the end of the day. Right. And I know with my research, like I, you know, I'm looking at the extremes and I want to figure out like, is there a way to optimize? And I think to be completely honest, this is my hypothesis and it's good that I'm going into it this way as a scientist, you, you should not pick teams. Um, <laughs> but I'm going into it thinking that there's probably not going to be much difference on the whole. So some people are going to do really well on just sort of generalized healthy eating diet. Some people right. are going to do really well on the vegan diet. But what we're going to find is that very different inter-individual variation where some yep. people are really going to be able to stick to that vegan diet and it's going to sing to them and mm-hmm. they are just going to be so psyched for the rest of their life mm-hmm. they're going to be able to stick to this. Mm-hmm. And some people three weeks in are going to be like, I am not going to be, I can't right. do this. I just right. can't do it. And so I think when you look at that, you have to to your original point of, you know, what are, what are all these fad diets? Yeah. It's people get so emotionally attached to the diet that works for them Yeah, that they think it's like the only diet and the only way to do it. Right. And so that's where you start to get all these like crazy blog posts and people start making, you know, writing books and making products and everything else. And it's just like, you know, it's just, there's no data out there to support that one is necessarily better than the other as long right. as you're on that healthy eating spectrum. Right, right. Yeah, and it's like kind of being true to kind of like what you're saying about um, the comparison between you and, your hus- you and your husband, like being true also to like what makes your body feel like garbage and then what, yeah. you know, what you thrive on. So like, you know, trying to trying to kind of go in that direction. And I think sometimes that takes like, you know, it takes a little bit of like trial and error. Like, for example, um, I grew up in Scotland where, you know, most of, you know, most of the stuff that we had was like fairly locally sourced. I mean, like the milk is, my sister lives right beside the dairy where they have, where they have the milk that goes like to a whole bunch of places. And so everything was locally sourced. I never, ever had any issues with, um, with milk growing up, like had milk, no problem. But here in the States, like, I just find I break, my skin is just breaking out when mm-hmm. I have milk. And so I just cut that out and I don't have that problem. Yeah. Now, I haven't, like, I haven't, like, eradicated all dairy, like, because I love cheese. <laughs> and <Who doesn't? laughs> I Right? <laughs> and then I have, like, a yogurt now, like, now and again here and there. And that seems to be okay. But I, it's, but it took that kind of, like 
just trying to like figure out what was causing my skin to break out to like, you know, like trial and error, I guess too. Yeah. I think that's so, so, so important. And I think that's the thing that, especially in the diet world where diet is so tied in with health on a variety of different spectrums, but mm-hmm. weight most of all is mm-hmm. that people are always chasing that sort of elusive magic pill. Right. And there isn't one. That's the right. thing is you've got to find the thing that works for you. Like you can drink, you know, milk in Scotland, but you can't yeah. drink it here. Like yeah. clearly there's something going on there and right. that's fine. Like that's great for you. And then right. it's probably for somebody else, completely the opposite. Like they can right. drink milk here and they go to Scotland and they're, and they're like, like, what, what the is hell? This? My <laughs> stomach is, yeah, right. Exploding. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, I think that's the thing. And, and I think one of the things that, that is so tough about food and diet is that it does take this real awareness of yourself. Mm-hmm. And so it's really easy to log on to some blogs, you know, pitching some crazy diet, whatever, and be like, yeah, this is going to work for me. Yeah. But really what it is, it's like, you've got to take the time and really pay attention to the way certain foods affect your body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I use, um, uh, an analogy that I just think is fun. And, you know, we talk about a lot of times that like allergies, for mm-hmm. example, people mm-hmm. have very dramatic allergies to food mm-hmm. as, you know, so bad that they could go into anaphylactic shock. Right. And there are eight pretty typical allergens that people are allergic to. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that everybody is allergic to those things, but for whatever reason, your body is responding to it. Um, and, you know, tied along with that often goes, you know, a gluten sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And what we look at with those eight allergens and then this gluten sensitivity is that about somewhere between one and 3% of the population are affected by these things. Interesting. But about 5% of the population is considered a millionaire. So go check your bank account and And it's much more likely (laughs) (laughs) that you have a million dollars in the bank than you have a sensitivity to a lot of these foods. So freaking out about them, you know, and like a lot of these diets are built on like, oh, do you have this sensitivity Mm -hmm. or this allergy or Mm -hmm. whatever? Like the likelihood that you have that is pretty slim to none. Right. So play around with the rest of the, you know, food that you're eating and figure out what works best for you. Yeah. And, and go in that direction. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you, do you recommend people to get allergy testing and stuff or what's your take on that? Cause I know that sometimes they can be quite sensitive and then kind of scare people a little. I mean, I know, for example, my sister got allergy tested and came back with this like laundry list of like yeah. a gazillion things that she was allergic to. And like in my head, I'm like, I just can't believe that, you know, she would be alerted to all these things, but you know, she'll be the first person to say that she feels bloated and puffy. And like when she has these kind of like this kind of stuff. And I wonder though, if there is a sliding scale, you know, is there a scale of allergies or. I mean, yeah, I think because so. obviously you have like anaphylaxis is like your extreme, right? Yep. And coming down from there. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of people, a really good example of this is a lot of people will eat certain fruit, like mm-hmm. um, melons or um, strawberries Oh yeah. or papayas, and they'll eat it and you'll feel your tongue and your lips tingling a little yes. bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's an allergy. Okay. So if, you know, you get an allergy test, it's likely that, you know, you're going to show that you have an allergy to something like a strawberry. That's not 
life-threatening. It's not right. going to do anything like really negative to your body minus the little tingle that you feel in your lips. And in right. fact, if you swallow the papaya or the strawberry, it's probably going to do a lot of good things to your right. body because it's right. so jam-packed with all the good stuff. Right. Um, but I, I think the thing when you start to get um, into a lot of these, you know, like peanut allergies are really mm. bad and, mm-hmm. um, you know, other shellfish allergies where they can turn into these really life-threatening issues yeah. very fast. I didn't, Paying attention to those is really important. Yeah. I found out I was allergic to shellfish. For whatever reason, I hadn't eaten shellfish growing up. I don't know why. And then when I was like 21-ish years old, I have celiac disease as well. So I already mm-hmm. have that like gluten eliminate out my diet. And so we were like, well, you know what? I want to try new things I can actually eat. And so I had like this big seafood, like we had lobster and king prawn (laughs) and scallops and everything. And it was delicious. But then like the next day I started to kind of, I thought I just had a heat rash. I used to work, I was working as a lifeguard at the time. So often I would get like a little bit of a heat rash, but then it continued to spread on my whole entire body for a week. And I was like, (laughs) Okay, so I'm not going to eat shellfish again. Clearly allergic. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I think paying attention to those signs is really important too, right? So there's a difference between your lips tingling and you having a full body rash. Yes, exactly. And I, because I remember the first time I ever, ever tried pineapple and like Mm -hmm. my tongue feeling like kind of like a bit fuzzy, but then, but I still eat pineapple and it's delicious. Do you want to know something really interesting, fun fact about the pineapple? Yeah. That's probably not an allergy. Oh, really? There's actually an enzyme in pineapple that breaks down protein. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's the, they actually extract it from enzyme, the enzyme from protein, from pineapples to make like, um, meat tenderizer. So. Wow. (laughs) That's actually an enzyme that's working on you. So is it good for you then or? Uh, It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be harmful at all because what happens is when you eat it, it's a protein. So, you know, breaks apart into a million pieces, but, um, yeah, it will actually, start to break apart the protein on your tongue. Wow. That's what you're feeling. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It can't hurt you. Like, it's, yeah. you know, there's not enough yeah. of it, but. Mm-hmm. Dang. Oh, see, you're just full of these little yeah. fun facts. <laughs> I teach food science here at Simmons, so that's one of the. Yeah, there you the go. <laughs> <laughs> so another hot topic that I know that you have a lot to talk about is the organic versus GMO mm. vegetables and fruit. And I kind of want to get that take first and then how that kind of also compares into like our meat and dairy and is there like uh is there anything in it there too yeah so this is a really complicated issue because it goes it sort of ranges the spectrum of individual health all the way out to environmental health okay and so i'm going to tackle it from the person health perspective knowing that there's a sort of like a loaded conversation on the other side of environmental Mm -hmm. protections as well Mm -hmm. which is not really my wheelhouse but one thing that I will say that I think is a common misconception is when we're talking about organic versus conventional or these GMO products Mm -hmm. the first thing that people often think is that organic food is not using herbicides insecticides pesticides they are they're just organic so typically what they are is uh, like a copper-based pesticide or a naturally occurring protein. So I'll give you an example. Um, corn can be both organic and it can be um, a GMO. And so the GMO, basically what they do is they take a little protein called 
uh, BT. It's got a longer name, but that's essentially what it's um, abbreviated to. So you get BT corn. And if you insert it into the corn, it is a GMO. If you spread it on the corn, that enzyme, it's the exact same protein because it's naturally occurring. If you spray it on the protein, on the corn, it's organic. Wow. Yeah. And so what happens is the bugs eat it and they basically explode, Um, but it's pest control. And so just the different applications will make one product organic and one product conventional. Interesting. Crazy, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of layers here as to what makes something organic or what makes it conventional. Right. And from the research that we can find as, you know, I wrote a blog post about this um, or maybe a Facebook post about it a couple of weeks ago about how we have to really pay attention to the science here because this Mm -hmm. is going to lead us out of this area of like, is this dangerous for us or is it not? And we want to know the correct answer to that, right? Right. Yeah. So there's been a significant amount of research lately looking at the differences between organic and conventional products. And what they find is that there are very, very, very slight variations. So when you look at like beef and milk, it seems like there are slightly more omega-3 fatty acids in that beef and milk in organic than there is conventional. Okay. And that there's just sort of across the board variations between certain vitamins and minerals and like these phytochemicals that are in plants, whether or not it's organic or um, conventional. Okay. What we haven't found is that it has a lick of difference on your actual health. Okay. So the tiny minuscule amount that might be different between organic and conventional Mm -hmm. is completely obliterated by the fact of whether or not you actually eat fruits and vegetables. So, okay, like if you eat the fruits and vegetables, you're going to be way healthier than somebody that doesn't eat the fruits and vegetables, regardless right. of whether or not they're organic or for sure. Right. Yeah. And then the next question is sort of like, what do you do about the pesticides and the herbicides? Are those bad for you? And I think the answer is in excess. Yes. And yeah. this goes for both organic and conventional. So the conventional is, you know, these synthetic, pe- you know, chemicals The organic are basically, you know, heavy metals, which are also not good for you. And there's a pretty good amount of research now that are showing that they're accumulating in the water system as well. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Okay. But the best thing you can do for these fruits and vegetables is just wash them. So get them home, give them a good scrub. Yeah. And you'll get most of that pesticide residue off. Okay. One other point that I'll make is, okay, but what happens if you're sort of like exposed forever to these pesticides and like these synthetic chemicals are pretty new. So we want to keep an eye on them. There was a pretty big report that was released maybe a month or two ago, looking at the farmers that spray their crops with both organic and then conventional, mostly Roundup or glyphosate. Okay. And what they wanted to know is, is this Roundup or glyphosate dangerous And so they follow the farmers because they would have the most frontline exposure. So if anybody's going to get a massive dose, it's going to be the farmers. Yeah. And they didn't really find anything. And they followed them for a couple of decades here. Oh, wow. Thousands and thousands of farmers to see if they had any, a, a multitude of health differences. Okay. They showed a slight increase in one specific type of cancer. I want to say it was lymphoma, but I'm not 100% certain that that's the one. Um, but it wasn't a significant increase or a difference between the groups that had the organic and the groups that had the glyphosate. Okay. So 
scientists are very cognizant of this and they're saying, okay, this is definitely something that we need to pay not pay attention to. Right. But as of right now, the data that we have shows that there doesn't seem to be a massive effect on health, regardless of the pesticides or herbicides or insecticides that are chemical, sorry, that are conventional or organic. Okay. And the variation in food doesn't seem to be very different either. So I had, um, now, and I don't have the, now I feel ill-prepared because (laughs) I don't have the the thing to support here, but I was talking to someone, um, because I was excited about talking to you today. (laughs) Um, And so we were talking and she had brought up a point that she had read there had been some sort of correlation between um, these pesticides and leaky gut syndrome. Do you know anything about that or is that? So two things I think are going on there. One is leaky gut right now is not really a clinical term. So it's kind of being thrown around like something, uh, something that we can cure and affect. And it does seem to be that certain things are affecting these tight junctions in our intestines, Mm -hmm. but the science on it is really, 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 I'm going to say it again, really (laughs) small. Okay. Um, We're looking at this, you know, with cells in the Petri dish. We really haven't studied it in humans yet. And so this extrapolation out to leaky gut is very, very loose. Okay. Pun not intended. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one thing that I will say is that we do know for sure that things do affect our gut particularly our gut bacteria. Okay. And those bacteria are going to be the our first line of defense against things coming into our system that shouldn't okay. be there. Okay. So I'm going to take this one step further for you. Mm-hmm. How do you protect your gut? The number one thing to have amazing gut flora and then also to make a nice paste over your intestines so nothing bad gets in there is yep. eating a ton of fiber. Okay. Do you know where you get fiber from? Broccoli. Broccoli. Very good. Yes. <laughs> Broccoli is like my favorite thing ever. <laughs> Excellent. Your gut is very healthy. So, um, yeah, fiber you're going to get from anything that grows in the ground. So okay. uh, fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains, all of those are chock full of fiber. Okay. And then if we think back to... Remember I told you that 60% of our diet right now is highly processed Process, fat. Right. Mm-hmm. There's like no fiber in that unless right. you literally get like a fiber one bar. And even then it's kind of like cardboard. Yeah. So what I think has happened, you know, if you just sort of like take a zoom out and, you know, not freaking out about like what's happening with leaky gut. Yeah. If you just take a big zoom out and say, clearly we've got some health issues that are related to food in mm-hmm our, you know, system right now. Mm -hmm. One of the big things I think is we have taken this super nutrient dense, high fiber food out of our diet. Very few people eat fruits and vegetables. Yeah, I mean, it's like people get, we're supposed to get five a day. In fact, they say up to 10 is really what we need. And people get 1.5, two servings. And it's like, most of the time, even when we're looking at that, it's like iceberg lettuce or potatoes because they're eating French fries or chips. Right. And so I think, you know, if we, because this gets us down this road of like crazy fad stuff real quick mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. is, okay, if you've got leaky gut, what extreme thing do you have to do to fix it? Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that we need to like 
first and foremost do is acknowledge that our diet overall is pretty crappy. Mm-hmm. But the best thing that we can do is to get those fruits and vegetables in there, whether or not they're organic or conventional. Okay. Get that, you know, the nuts and seeds in there. Yeah. Feed that good bacteria because that's what it eats. That good bacteria is going to eat that fiber and it's going to okay. grow good and strong, protecting okay. those tight junctions. And then that fiber, again, makes that paste in your intestines and you've got this amazing sort of twofold protection. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay, cool. So that should be the foundation really of any of these diets and then add in what works, you know, add in a little dairy or not meat or not. Um, and I think the other thing is, is I don't want to be, um, like totally Pollyanna about the fact that like there's probably things that they're not probably, there are things that we should regulate and pay attention to in our food Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. But if we are just constantly focused on the tiny minutiae, it's like we're losing the forest through the trees. Is that if you're freaking out about eating gluten, but you're completely cool eating nothing but gluten-free cookies all day, like it's still a cookie, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we got to be careful about that. And you know, if like you, if you, feel like your gut is, you know, you're feeling bloated or you're feeling like things are not, are not right. Checking out the foods that you're already eating rather mm-hmm. than taking it to some extreme level where you're like, oh, I've got to take this supplement or go on some cleanse or, you know, right. enemas or like crazy things that people do. Yeah. Um, I think taking a step back and really paying attention to what the overall landscape of what you're putting in your mouth mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. is a really good step. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that number one message then is just increase. If everyone were to increase their fruits and vegetables, we'd all be a good bit healthier. So much healthier. It's so crazy to like say, right and it's so unsexy, and people <laughs> want to have like nothing to do with it. But if we can eat more fruits and vegetables, nuts yeah. and seeds, whole grains, mm-hmm. this is a, a saying that I use all the time: is eat real food. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be great if you eat real food, and yep. then. When you're eating real food, then you can dial in and tweak based on what your best, you know, self is. You know, something I think about, too, because I'm a researcher and I I teach a lot of classes, is we are very privileged to be able to have this conversation where we're like, should I buy the organic Driscoll strawberries or the non-organic Driscoll strawberries? And, you know, like, you've walked into Whole Foods before or you walk in, the first thing that slams you in the face are the strawberries. Yeah. The organic ones are $7.99 for a package, yeah. and the regular ones are $4.99. Right. $4.99 is still really expensive for people yeah. to pay for strawberries. Yeah. And yeah. for us to be like, hey, you can only have the organic ones. Right. Like, we're we're really sending the wrong message there, I think. Right. Yeah. I guess then another, another kind of quick point to make would be, um, like, how do you feel about, like, the frozen versus fresh? So this is a great question. So I love this one. Um, Frozen is actually an outstanding option. Okay. And I'll tell you why. There are two reasons, two good reasons. One, frozen vegetables are typically frozen at the peak of their freshness. Okay. So you actually end up with this really like super ripe, very high nutrient dense product. Um, You need to be a little bit careful when you thaw them out. So like if you thaw them out and a lot of the juice runs out. Mm-hmm. Um, drink it, like make right. a soup with it. Cause yeah. some of these vitamins are water soluble and they'll leach out a little bit, but the same thing happens when you cook you right. Know, fresh. Right. 
The other thing is, and again, I'm putting my nutrition professor hat on, is we waste an obscene amount of food in this country. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, like, it's not healthy until you eat it, right? Right. So if you buy the fruits and vegetables and you go on, like, a complete bender and you get so excited about, I'm going to eat so healthy and then it all rots in your fridge. Right. And you throw it away. Right. It's done nothing for you. Right. But if you can buy the frozen stuff and put it in your freezer and use it when it's there. Yes. Win-win. Yeah, that's what I like to do. I have, um, I'm a creature of habit. I have the exact same thing for breakfast every morning, <laughs> but I put my like frozen blueberries into my oatmeal and I yeah. let them like kind of defrost in there. So you got all the juices and so it Delicious. kind of turns it a little bit purple, but, but I would often find that, um, you know, like sometimes if, you, if I buy everything fresh, I can't eat all of it in time. Right. And then you end up with having to waste food and yeah, yeah you're right. Like it's insane the amount of food that we waste. I mean, even in like the supermarkets, I went into like a different supermarket the other day. I usually shop at Trader Joe's. It's nice and condensed. I know where everything yeah. is. <laughs> and um, I went into a different supermarket and I just was kind of like for a second, I was like, there's so much food here. Like I cannot believe that it will all get eaten it before before it, it goes bad, you know? Yeah. And the good thing I know about, and this is not an advert for Trader Joe's, <laughs> but the good thing about Trader Joe's is I know that, because I've, I've seen them, they they take all the stuff that's about to expire and they donate it to the local, like, shelters. They and they, so they get it used, which I really like, rather than it going, or, like, if you get, like, a box of eggs and, like, one's broken, they will give the, they'll take that box of eggs and they'll put it in the stuff to donate. So, like, yeah. because they can't sell that, but then someone else can use their, their, 11 eggs that were in the box, you know, so totally. They have a really, um, innovative model here in Boston to Trader Mm -hmm. Joe's is the CEO, one, maybe not CEO, one of the C-suite guys, Mm -hmm. um, was, this is an interesting story. He started, um, a, a small sort of grocery store here in Boston called the daily table. Okay. Where they basically buy ugly vegetables and then, food that supermarkets won't take because it's inside of the like sell by date. So for example, in order for the the big supermarket to buy yogurt, it needs to be like 60 days out from their sell by date. So if it's within 30 days, they won't accept it. Right. Even though it's perfectly good food and it's not going to be bad for another month. Yeah. Um, So at the daily table, they buy all this stuff and then they sell it and they're in one of the sort of like low socioeconomic neighborhoods here in Boston, actually two now. And they sell this like gorgeous, you know, Slightly deformed carrot to, you know, neighbors that you can go in and buy a dozen eggs for 50 cents instead of, you know, the $3.99. And the story that he tells that I love to the point of, you know, food waste is he's like, you know, when you go in and you buy the romaine lettuce Mm -hmm. and it comes in, you know, like the long romaine lettuce and it comes in like a, you know, a bag of three. (coughs) Yep. And he's like what do you think happens? He's like, we can't control this in nature. He's like, what do you think happens to all that lettuce that doesn't fit in the bag? Mm. Right? You're like, oh, I had no idea. And you know what it turns out is if it doesn't get sold at like a farmer's market or something, um, it just gets turned under. So all that food that has been grown that is really good, healthy, nutritious food just doesn't even get to the consumer. So now they work to you know, work directly with farmers to buy the ugly produce or the produce that doesn't fit in the bag and then sell it direct to consumer. Dang, like you never like think about that as well. I know. You're like, 
I'm sure like the perfect like on the vine stuff as well. Like they're not they're not using that. I know I need to get my water here. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they're not using that. Like if if there's one that's not gonna fit, they're not gonna put that in the box or sell no, it. No, exactly. Yeah. There's apparently a new CSA around here too. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called, but they're selling ugly produce as well. So they'll go around to the farmers and be like, give me your, you know, wonky looking strawberries or yeah. <laughs> tomatoes or whatever. And yeah. yeah, that's excellent. That's great that like people are doing that. And I think it's also really cool that they're doing that in, in like Boston, like in a big city mm -hmm. as well. Cause I feel sometimes, you know, I work, I do pediatric home health. So I go to people's houses, like all over the Valley here in Vegas and, um, like there are definitely like being into like different neighborhoods, like there's such diverse populations within yeah. like the city that it's like, how do you even like have like an outreach that gets like all this like good food and encourages people to to eat healthier because they don't put a Trader Joe's like down in the ghetto, you know, like yeah. they don't put they don't put like a Whole Foods there either. You know, and I mean, not that I'd want them to put up Whole Foods there, because I know that I don't know they're 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 quite expensive anyway. But yeah. I don't know. It's it's definitely a challenge. I feel like to to get the food where it needs to be at times. I know? think that is it's a huge challenge, and it's something that you know, back to our very original point, gets me most frustrated about these fad diets is mm -hmm. because we're making these choices that are number one, you know, not really based in any sound science really. Mm -hmm. And they're making people crazy on the back end because they feel like, you know, even if you do have money to buy the right food, you feel like you're uh, not buying the right food and you feel overwhelmed and guilty and like you're not doing the right thing. Yeah. And then imagine if you just didn't even have the money to buy the right, right. food. Right. And now you're being told like, okay, you need to buy this like crazy extreme thing in order to be healthy. And it's just not right. true. Yeah. And so that gets really frustrating to me because I feel like the message that we're sending to the whole population is just, it's not attainable and, and mm -hmm. it's not even necessary. Right. Yeah. So bringing it back then to, from a nutrition and sports standpoint, I know you're mm. a cyclist and uh, yes. you mentioned your husband's cyclist too. Um, do, I think this kind of brings us on to like a different population of people actually now, because, yeah. because now we're talking about a, a population that are in general going to already be a, certainly, I feel like a little bit more mindful about what they're eating. And so they may already know, like be eating like healthier than like your average Joe, Joe Schmo, right? Yeah. Um, as far as like exercise nutrition, um, one thing I think I wanted to talk about, I have two questions. One thing I want to talk about was FODMAPs. Mm. And do you have experience like talking about FODMAPs or, yeah. which is, I'm going to like mess up, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, and then I can't remember the rest. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the only reason I bring this up, so the um, last year, I'd had all these issues with uh, nutrition and sport. And, um, for a long time was like really struggling to keep down my food during a race. So I'd be, I'd be trying to take on gel, trying to take on nutrition and, and like through the balls and stuff as well. But I would like physically throw up mm. maybe 25 to 50% of that. So it was like, you're just chase. I was just chasing my tail the whole time. 
Yeah. And my coach recommended that I listen to this podcast. Um, I, I think it was called Endurance Planet or something like that. And they had this um, professor on and she was talking about this low FODMAPs diet. And ba so basically I just tried, she, she was like, let's, because it's not a sustainable diet whatsoever. You're eliminating like onions and garlic and all these like typically like really good anti-inflammatory foods. And so it's not sustainable. However, I started doing it and I would like follow the plan for maybe three days before the race and the race. And I had no issues whatsoever during the race and I switched gels to like one that a gel that like um fell in line with that um but I had never heard about this term FODMAPs before this and it was interesting because the the gal talking about it they had they also had done a study with um like cyclists and gluten and the results of that was that it made absolutely zero difference whatsoever mm -hmm. <laughs> on yeah. performance. So like that was kind of like good to hear as well. Cause I was like, cause I think, I mean, I don't eat gluten because I have celiacs and I just can't. And that's right. fine. Part like sometimes every so often I'll ask my GI doctor, like maybe like a little reverse, like maybe I don't have it anymore. And he's mm -hmm. like, no, you, you always have disease, that. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. just deal with it. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, but I think that's been like a hot topic as well as the gluten. So the one thing to take away from that was that no impact on sports performance. However, these FODMAPs um, was kind of interesting and I don't feel like they're talked about a lot either. Is that yeah. because they're just, is it all in my mind? Nope, not at all. So it's actually really interesting. So we're actually finding outside of the athletic community that people that feel like they have a gluten sensitivity, so not celiac, but, you know, eat things with gluten in them, uh -huh. feel, you know, bloated or whatever they might in fact have an issue with FODMAPs. And what FODMAPs are, essentially they're long chains of sugars that need to be broken apart by enzymes in your gut mm -hmm. to absorb the little sugars one by one because okay. that's how sugar gets absorbed in your system. Right, right. So if you don't have enough of those enzymes to break them apart, then you tend to have a lot of discomfort and bloating and, yeah. you know, you might even throw up because, you know, water and osmosis and like you just end up with really not good things happening yeah um with cycling I think the thing that is so interesting about this FODMAP diet is one of the reasons that gluten uh, sorry that these gels work so well and like why a peanut butter sandwich on white gummy bread works so well when you're out there mm -hmm. is because it's absorbed, it's broken apart into a simple sugar really, really quickly and really easily right. and absorbed very fast. Right. Whereas these FODMAPs take some time mm -hmm. to slowly break down. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they can sit in your gut while you're trying to do something really extreme like yep. bike. Yep. And that's when you get that massive discomfort. Yeah. So there's some, there's been some recommendations, um, there's actually a couple of groups that in Europe that are looking at this pretty tightly with regard to athletic performance. And what they're finding is if you sort of schedule out your carbohydrates where you've got a little bit of very quick acting carbohydrates, so like something that's the, the quickest you could get would be like a, a glucose pill or like gel that has straight glucose in it. Yeah. That's going to be absorbed really quickly without needing any enzymatic action. But then you follow it up with some of these longer hanging around FODMAPs. Oh, okay. You can actually like 
get that rush of glucose into your system to use right now and then keep that slow drip, you know, as you digest the rest of the, the carbohydrates. But if your gut doesn't have the enzymes that can do that quickly or very efficiently, yeah. then reducing your FODMAPs while, you know, a couple of days before and while you are actually exercising might be a good idea yeah. so that you don't get them just accumulating in your gut while you're trying to move. Right. So you are not crazy. This okay. is actually something. <laughs> because I know that there's like a lot of things. I know they're just, you know, there's a lot of things happening as well, like that are the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. And like for me, I'm like, you know what, if, you know, if, even if it's placebo, <laughs> placebo and it works for you, like just continue with it. But it's also nice to like, kind of like be like, Oh no, that makes sense. Yeah. Because I have like found that, um, like last year was like the first year that I applied it to racing and I had zero issues yeah. and like this, and it was, it was such a like re- revelation for me because, because this was like a big hang up. Like it was so difficult to like race effectively when, you know, it wasn't like I was nervous about if it would happen. It was just like trying to figure out like, well, when's it going to happen and how can I try and like just keep chasing this? And it was just impossible, you know? So, so it is interesting. And I also was able to um, download an app. It was kind of an expensive app. However, um, like, I think it was, I mean, as far as apps goes, like maybe Mm -hmm. like 699 or 799 or something from the Monash university. Uh-huh. And and it like I'll show you on the screen here. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And I've given that to people. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was like it like shows you like a guide and it's got like a red light, mm-hmm. red light, yellow light, green light system. So that would made it a lot easier to follow. So so what kind of symptoms then would you say like so if people are just having issues during performance, is that when you would kind of like point them in that direction or Yeah. yeah. I think so. So, you know, it's like the difference of um like people always ask me, and it's it's funny when we talk about nutrition with performance. It's mm-hmm. actually a very different kind of nutrition, as yeah. you know. Like, yeah, when you are out there, you know, it's funny. I go out on like long rides with friends of mine, and I would never eat. You know, a, my favorite thing when I'm out for really long rides is like a gummy white bread, peanut butter, and right. Nutella sandwich. Yeah, and people are like who are you? You don't eat this. And I'm like, well, I eat it when I'm out on a 150 mile ride Yeah, because you have to keep that glucose high. You need to keep your blood sugar high or else Mm -hmm. you're going to bonk. And so the nutrition, the actual food that you would eat when you're exercising anyways, regardless of FODMAPs is going to be different Mm -hmm. when you're exercising because you need that super quick rush Mm -hmm. of glucose. It's like people are, I, I used to get a little bit annoyed with it with, with nutritionists because I'm like, why not just give people a banana and then I tried a banana out on the road and I was yeah. like, oh, I see. <laughs> this is not a good idea. <laughs> Beyond it just being like really hard to get down. Yeah, right. It's like, <laughs> and awkward while like, yeah. you're cycling. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, but it like just sits in your belly and sits in your gut because it's so fibrous and because it's got mm-hmm. these starches in it mm-hmm. that your body just can't break it down fast enough for you to use it. So it's just right. sitting there and you're just feeling like heavy and gross. Right. And so I think the thing is, is that, you know, if we take a step, this is actually, it's a really nice step from, you know, being on this spectrum of healthy eating, but also knowing, and knowing your body mm-hmm. and also knowing that like what, what you're doing at that time is also going to be really important to what you're eating. Right. So exercising, if you're just going out and mm-hmm. so I teach, I am a cyclist outdoors, but I also teach spinning here in mm-hmm. the city. And if I teach a 45 minute spin class. 
I don't eat any different during the day because right. your body is just meant to be active. So yes. just eat food. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're out and you go for like an hour, 90 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, that's when you really need to start thinking about, like you said, staying ahead of it and making right. sure that your blood glucose isn't getting too low um, so that you can you can keep going. Yeah. By the way, um, just because you mentioned it before, and I know in the cycling community, ketogenic has been kind of like a hot topic as yeah. well. Yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah. So here's the thing that's cool about uh, eating a high carbohydrate diet while you're doing some sort of endurance event or eating a high fat diet is actually they both work, which is pretty cool. So if you want to be ketogenic, there's, you know, like the tweet heard around the world when Chris Froome like tweeted out some like, you know, avocado and egg and salmon breakfast he had. And everybody was like, he's keto. Well, not really. They cycle. (laughs) They cycle their food depending on what they're doing, you know, for the training. Yep. But um, the thing is, is that your body is perfectly equipped to burn either glucose or fat as a fuel really efficiently. So you can do a long endurance event and have either be your predominant fuel and you're great. Okay. Where things get not great is when you need to, at the end of a race or maybe even in the middle, like kick really hard into a sprint or like crush a hill as fast as you can. Yep. You actually can't use fat for that because you're breaking into anaerobic metabolism. Right. And anaerobic metabolism is only going to use glucose as a substrate. Right. So I would argue, and I think a lot of the research is pointing in this direction, is that you want to be something that's called metabolically flexible so that when you've got fat on board, you can use that really efficiently. When you've got glucose on board, you can use that really efficiently. And when you need to sprint or you need to like crush for 30 seconds a minute, you have the availability to do that because your enzymes are primed to do it. Right. Yeah, that was definitely, I had like, I've, I've talked to various people and when they've been like super adamant about you know, just being fat fueled for different, um, sporting events. And I think that like, I think it definitely has to do with like, kind of like what you're saying. So there may be a couple people I can think of who, you know, they were talking about using it like in a, like a, an Ironman or a half Ironman setting. Mm-hmm. And they're not the athlete who is also like trying to get sprint finish or right. they're the ones who are in it just to complete it. Right. And so they probably are working aerobically the entire time and they don't need mm-hmm. to worry about those like high end efforts. Um, whereas like, so in our race, like, so um, I'm still like relatively new to like the, the pro side of um, mountain biking, mm-hmm. but like last year, like I would spend actually even, even at the recent race, like I had spent like a good amount of time with my heart rate at 180, like between mm. 180 and 185. Now there is yeah. no way that like, I'm just like <laughs> chugging along at that yeah. kind of intensity, you know? Right. And so I think like for, that's why for me, like I really need, I feel best on the goo energy gels um, and then an electrolyte drink to make sure yeah. that I'm also not like cramping up too. Yeah. Um, and there's just no way that I could do that on like an avocado and other fats, you know, well, they're actually so, like physically, there's no way that you could do it. So yeah, for the people, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this was, like, Physiologically, like, it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. And I remember trying to like argue this point to someone and 
I think that like, I was like, are you, you know, you just kind of, you can't argue, you can't change like the meta like how a cell metabolizes exactly. at an anaerobic level. Like exactly. you're not going to change that, you know? Nope. So that's, it's good to hear you say that also and kind of bring it back to that. The other thing um, I was kind of laughing about with my friend yesterday is that like myself and my friend Jake. So for me, again, because like I'll often be like racing at this really intense level after the race, it takes mm. me a while for my gut to be ready to eat anything. Yeah. So what I have learned to do is I wait and I see like kind of like what I feel like eating. And most of the time it's like salty potato chips. Oh yeah. Ugh. Totally. It's like 100%. the best thing. Mm -hmm. And so like, so like, I have that same craving. Isn't that funny? I give me potato chips. Yeah. It's and the, the best. The trashiest, like the trashier, the better too. <laughs> like, and I would never eat them normally. Yep, like same. I have a bag downstairs because like we, like both me and Jake had br both brought like trashy salty potato chips. And so we both like had like his one after the race. Um, and it's funny cause like, like you're saying about like normal nutrition versus like performance nutrition is so different. Like you would yeah. never normally catch me eating a bag of like, of these like trashy solid, solid potato chips. But after the race, that's exactly what I need to get just a little bit, little bit of salt, a little bit of carbohydrate and just to get something in there until later, then you yeah. can eat that proper meal because yeah. like I physically cannot eat like afterwards, yeah. you know, totally. Like, and it's actually really funny. So if you get a potato chip, I mean, it's just oil, potatoes, and salt. Right. And so it could just be that that combination is okay yeah. for your body to digest really quickly. At that that salt is going to make you feel so good after you've been yes. sweating like crazy. Yeah. And I don't know. There's something about like the crunch too, yeah. which is so satisfying. And oranges. <laughs> That's another weird thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> like orange slices. Like yep. um, at Breck, Breck Epic last year was like a six-day stage race. So like... Oh, God, I remember seeing pictures of you doing oh that. Oh, my gosh. That, was that just, like, epic or it what? It was so epic. Like, <laughs> it was funny because this morning I was, like, actually, like, thinking about, oh, I wonder, like, if there's still space available. And, like, maybe I'll do that again this year. Whereas, like, last year I think I definitely you had, like, maternal amnesia. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing a post of yours where you're like, that was amazing, never again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, like, now I'm like, oh, I just remember all the good parts of it right now. <laughs> But like that was, um, I remember, like I talked about, and uh, we did a series of podcasts like every single night that week, and um, and the after the first day, I had a terrible day. Nutrition was awful, and I ended up like just having really bad stomach pain. I had like liver damage a couple of years ago, and I get this weird, very similar pain, and I got that pain that day, and I just like had to go and sleep. And I tried to like drink as much. And I think what happened, I didn't drink enough water during that day. And so that was my fault. But I knew what I had done wrong. So then the next day, that was fine. And then I think the third day I tried having like, the second day we had like pizza afterwards and it was like perfect. And then the third day I was like, well, I'm going to like make some like pad thai noodles and have like some really healthy stuff with it. But I didn't have as great a day the next day. Yeah. And then, so every day after that, I just had pizza at night and was able to perform the best the next day. And I think that, like, I think in those situations, you just, like, have to go off of, like, what is working for your body in that 100%. situation, you know? Yeah, and, like, 100%. It was, you know, and sometimes, yeah, you make the, you have to learn the hard way. Like, yeah, on day three, I felt really kind of groggy. And then, and when I went back to the pizza and, like, 
and it makes sense like you've got like like the veggies on the pizza you've got the carbohydrates you've got like the Mm -hmm. salt and stuff and it just gets you like replenished for the next day yeah and it's also the other thing is is it's also like a super high calorie food you're burning an Mm. incredible amount of calories when you're out there yeah and so you know for for like a normal day having a slice of pizza or two is like plenty but you can like pound back like a bunch of slices of pizza and it's easily digested your body's going to be able to use and store and reuse those calories as you're regenerating overnight. And it's like the best thing for you. Cause I don't think, I don't think even we were able to eat as many calories as what we were taking in, Mm -hmm. you know, like each day. And cause even after that race was done, I was hung, like really hungry for like probably like two to three days after it took just to kind of like get back to like an even keel. Totally. Oh, but what I was going to say was at the finishing line, they would always have like cans of Coke. Um, on After the third day, they had margaritas, which I was like, <laughs> yes, please. That sounds wonderful right now. Um, but they had cans of Coke and then solid potato chips. And they had like the orange slices. And I think I had like a couple handfuls of potato chips and then like five orange slices. Because yeah. you just got that like instant sugar mm-hmm. and yeah. instant... And it's easy to take on. Like making my mouth water right now. I know, I can, sorry. I can totally like picture the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. It was great. So that's all awesome. So I definitely don't have time to talk to you about the other stuff today, which means <laughs> I would love to schedule. We'll have to do it again. I know. Yes. I'll have to do it again. Because, and I, the reason I say this is because I know that you have a super duper exciting, massive project that you're working on just now with the prescription for exercise. Yes. And I would love to talk to you more about that. And then also like to kind of figure out like, because that's such a mammoth task, like what Mm -hmm. we can do in the meantime to kind of like implement within our communities and society, like, and not just amongst like our like active groups or already active, because that's who not, that's not who we're pandering to. We're not pandering Mm -hmm. to the person that is already running and cycling and exercising where like we're trying to like reach out to I say we you no you know we. like the plan this is, is a, this is a world worldwide effort yeah and it's, it's definitely we want to get the prescription as far is it for 150 minutes a week of yep. exercise yeah um and so just to kind of summarize that um you're working with an organization to to implement this so that physicians start prescribing exercise is the gist exactly. of it right yeah, so it's physicians and you know nurses and physicians assistants and yep. PTs and dietitians yeah. Yeah. and just across the spectrum getting every time you see a physician having them be you know talking about exercise. I have this yeah. dream in my head that eventually we'll have this amazing ad campaign. Yeah, that you know those you know these pharmaceutical ads that you see and like uh, it's like a thirty second commercial and yeah, there's like somebody you know in a bathtub overlooking a sunset and they talk yeah. about how great you're going to be for five seconds. Yeah, and then it's like. 45 seconds worth of just horrific side effects. Yes. They yeah. make me laugh all the time because I think that <laughs> I think that surprisingly America and then I think only New Zealand and maybe New one Zealand, country yeah. in the world have um direct to consumer direct advertising for pharmaceuticals. Like it's insane like you would never have that in the UK and it's <laughs> they just make me laugh every single time cuz it's like here, have this medication. It will, it may help you with these symptoms. Yeah. But you may also experience bleeding from the eyes, sudden <laughs> yeah, totally. respiratory yeah. absence, or whatever. Yeah, and you're like, totally. Yeah. Wait, what? What? Yeah. 
But like because so my, someone really happy in the background, people are like, oh, yeah, I want to oh, try yeah, it's that. Be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have, you know, what? Like, I have this, you know, they always say at the end, like, ask your doctor about blah, blah, blah. I yeah. have this in my brain. So if anybody's out there listening from the ad council and you want to yes. do like a massive campaign, please call me. Um, that the end of the thing will be like, ask your doctor about exercise. Side effects may include happiness, sleeping better, weight loss, you know, like all these right. like wonderful, right. <laughs> you know, outstanding side effects. So yeah. that's really what we're looking to do with that, yes. with that organization is to yes. make some massive change, like a yes. big force of change across the healthcare sector. So awesome. So yeah, yeah, so I definitely want to kind of like spend a bit more time talking with you about that just now. Yeah, because you work in the healthcare sector when you're you, off your bike too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, as I say, like I work with, I work with families from all demographics, from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, from all cultural backgrounds. And, um, and it's really, it's really interesting, like seeing like differences, like within communities, but also I think there's just, there's just a lack of knowledge like yeah. you know people I had a conversation with a, a mom the other day um who you know was feeling very isolated she has a child who has um you know increased needs and you know she has but she she doesn't have money she doesn't have a car she can't you know she can't go to like an exercise class or a gym right. or a, week, a weekly thing but I was like you know we, we go for a walk you know yeah. like get outside go for a walk and like and that didn't even, you know, scheduling a walk into her day didn't even cross her mind. And yeah. this lady, I should say as well, is not overweight. Yeah. Um, she's actually very slim. Um, but like, but it never even crossed her mind. And I was like, the, the mental benefits of exercise yeah. alone, especially people that are in these stressful situations or stressful or high stress lifestyles. And, you know, like, I'm like, she's, it's not like, um, what do you call it? Like the stock market stress. This is the stress of living in a low socioeconomic environment. Like yeah. that's a stressful place to be. Like very not knowing if you're going to be, if you're going to have a home next week, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's absolutely an underserved population. And it's so, there's so many super simple solutions Something as simple as scheduling yourself a 20-minute walk every single day yeah. would have so many benefits. But there's no one out there telling people that. No. This you is know? why we need my ad campaign. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> well, it's actually funny. Help that. <laughs> the, um, the, so in addition, I wear a lot of hats on, mm -hmm. in my life. But um, I'm also putting on this conference in Boston in April. Yes, I wanted and, to talk about that. Oh, my God. Okay. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. We'll just plug yeah. it here at the end, and it'll be okay. the perfect yes. way to sort perfect. of wrap everything up. Perfect. Um, so I'm putting on this conference. It's called Strong Process in yes. Boston. You can find it at strongprocess.com. It's in April. So if you're at local, definitely come. It's amazing. Yep. But one of the panels – so we're looking at health from three different pillars. One is called move, one is called eat, and one is called rest. Interestingly, the eat one is all about organic and conventional. So we've got okay. a ton of – that conversation is going to keep going. Yes. Um. But the MOVE panel is basically entitled, Why You Should Stop Exercising to Lose Weight. Okay. That is a funny play on words. I appreciate okay. that. But the idea here is that there are 9,000 reasons that you should be exercising that have absolutely nothing to do with burning calories. Right. And so there are so many benefits to exercise mm -hmm. that are just so far beyond, like at a cellular level, 
in every cell of your body, changing your body for the better, your brain, your heart, your muscles, your lungs, right? You know, just the way that you think about the world in all of those things we're going to talk about. There's this wonderful woman. She's going to talk about how movement becomes like spirituality for you, you know? So it's just like, how can we look at this? And, Mm -hmm. you know, to your point is like, reframe it so that it's not, you know, this chore that we have to go and do because we're like, "Uh." yeah, but really that it's like the best part of our day because we know how good it's going to make us feel on a million different levels. Absolutely. So strong process, check it out. Yes. Come find out why you want to move. Nine million different ways. And then Take the third panel is really cool. Yes. Yeah. I actually am okay. going to. Awesome. This is the idea is that we'll do – this is my dream in all of my spare time is that we will do <laughs> um, sort of like a monthly event, but that there will be two or three sort of like on tour throughout the country. Okay. Um, really targeted places. So Las Vegas, let's that do it. That would be great. <laughs> I would love you guys coming. I think it's a perfect um, – I did hear you talking about it as well, and, and it's – it's such a unique, um, the strong process form is such a unique thing because you're bringing together, um, like healthcare professionals Mm -hmm. and fitness professionals or like the researchers and the people who are out there like doing exercise classes. And there's very few, probably none, no other opportunities for these worlds to collide like this and have this discussion. And I think that that's, like being informed by the people who are actually doing the work and the research mm-hmm. is just something that I think is, and then also conversely, I mean, having these discussions back and forth, what's working, what's not working, why isn't exactly. it working and how can we make things better like for our entire nation? So, and that's what I think about too, you know, even going back to this prescription for activity task force, it's so easy to tell a doctor to write a script for their, you know, 30 minutes a day to their patient. Yeah. But where does that patient go? They right. go to the fitness professionals or they go right. to, an exercise physiologist or a PT. And if we're not all talking to each other, that poor patient is going to be left with, you know, a a piece of paper in their hand and no idea what to do. Right. Right. And I'm not okay with that. So changing that landscape. Yeah. So stoked. Rachel, thank you so much for coming today. It's been great. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again so much, Rachel, for coming on to the podcast. As I say, if you want tickets, you can head on over to strongprocess.com to find all the information for the Strong Process Forum out in Boston on April 8th. If you're looking for more information on the Women's Retreat, head on to fueltalk.co, um, head to events, and then figure that out. And then lastly, the new kid on the block, head on to specialize.com, then... Uh, Specialize.com, head to stories, scroll down to New Kid on the Block, and you can look up the event closest to you and register on there for free. Um, I think that's about it. Gosh, there's a lot of things I'm telling people to go and look up about. Um, if you have anything you want us to talk about or um, any questions you've got, please reach out on Instagram or Facebook. Um, or you can email me at lisa. Not lisa. Lisa, L-A-S-A, at fueltalk.co. And let me know what you're thinking about. All right, that's all for this week. I will see you all soon. Um, But in the meantime, stay dirty, my friends.